0: Uh, this morning, our text is going to be found in Philippians chapter 3, um, looking in verses 1 through 12 primarily. It's no surprise that I'm picking something that was written by Paul, that I'm in one of the epistles. Some of you probably figured out I probably do this every single time. Um, but Paul is a very simple writer. He likes to be very uh firm, but most of all very simple in what it is that he's trying to say. And if you also know me, you know I'm a very simple thinker. Um, I grew up and my dad always called me simple. I'm starting to realize that wasn't always a positive at the time. Um, But what what I want to look at today is in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, we're going to see kind of a personal testimony given by Paul. Um, We've looked a lot in these last couple months as Pastor Ben is going through the study of following in. Christ's steps later on in this chapter we see Paul giving the idea of um, in verse 17 brethren be followers together of me and mark them which walk so as ye have for us as an example this idea of kind of come follow me as I follow after Christ we have this continual idea of following after him and what we, we're gonna look at today is we're going to look at Paul is writing about this passionate pursuit and a continual pursuit of ...of the perfect and holy God, a continual pursuit, never ending, of who Christ is. That it's not simply at conversion or at salvation that is a one-time decision and never again do we continue to pursue Christ. But it is continual throughout all of our lives. It is something that is to never end. He's also going to tell of forsaking everything that he's had, everything that he's ever gloried in, all the things that he thought he could boast in, forsaking all of it in exchange for Christ... We're familiar with the words of Jesus in Matthew 16, where it says, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? How many individuals do you think have come to the end of their life after accruing all of this wealth, all of this fame, all of this status, but knowing that they have lost their soul would gladly exchange all of it when they're face to face with God. Begging and pleading, we see um, the story, we see the rich man and Lazarus, I'm not going to go through all of that because that'll be an incredibly long discussion. But you see him crying out, oh God, crying out and just saying, if someone would please go and tell my family, tell the people that I love about the truth, I don't want them here in hell. I do not want them to be around this. I don't want them. Someone go tell them. And you see the response. We see them saying, well, it's been told in the scriptures. They didn't believe Moses. They didn't believe Abraham. They didn't believe the prophets. They're not going to believe anyone else. The incredible truth this morning, and this is something that was highlighted at camp with a lot of the teens, and so um, it's just something that's been on my mind a lot, but always this understanding of the there's an eternal destiny for each and every one of us. And that's either in heaven with the Lord or in hell, fully enduring the full weight of his wrath forever. Now, I understand some of you are probably thinking, wow, this is a big self-esteem boost. Um, My my job is not for us, for me to make every one of us here feel really good about ourselves. Okay, and I'm going to tell you, this is something I greatly struggle with. Okay, I, I think I'm a friendly person. I like to make jokes, right? You can probably criticize me for joking way too much. All my life, everything's just been one big joke. I figure if you can't joke about it, then what are we doing here? But the incredible reality is that my job as a, as a pastor and Pastor Ben's job as a pastor and as a preacher is not to say, here's how you can be successful and attain all that you've ever wanted in your life. All I'm doing is sending you on the fast track to hell. And so when, when, when pastors come to you and they preach and they, they show the reality of there is a heaven, that is real... And there is a hell, and that is real, regardless of what Rob Bell or anyone else is telling you. These things are very, very real. To not tell you about that would show an incredible lack of love for each and every one of you. There are some here who say, Pastor, I understand it. I've been saved since I was a child. I've grown up in the faith. I understand it. I fully believe 100%. And some of you, that may be very, very genuine, and I praise God for that. But the Bible also tells us that there are some who will believe that they are saved, and they are not. They will cry out to God, saying, Lord, Lord, and he will say, depart from me, for what? I never knew you. A lot of times our question in church is, do you know Christ? It's an incredible question. It's important. Do you know him? Many people in America, if you haven't read the statistics, about 65-70% of Americans claim that they know Christ. That they know him. Look at our country. Does it sound, does it look like, does it feel like 70% of the country loves and knows Christ? Imagine what that would actually look like. It'd be incredible. This is where 70% of the country is claiming that they are Christians, that they do know Christ, and yet today more than 5,000 children, unborn children, are going to die today because of abortions. Thousands each and every day. And that's just here, just the ones that we know of that are recorded. Again, this isn't greatest pick-me-up, I understand. But it's the reality of the situation that we're dealing with. And also, if you, when you read through the Bible, not every text is something that you look at and you read and go, wow, God, I'm ready to just go out there And because I feel so just empowered in what I can do and that the world is a great place. I don't. I, the world is so easy to love, God. You're so right. It's not an easy place to love. We look around, and I say this every time, when you look at the news, and how many things this week have you seen or read in the news, and it broke your heart? Anytime you ever turn it on, I I just stop stop watching, which is probably not the right response. Avoiding the problem is not going to be the right response. So this morning, as I look through uh, Philippians chapter 3, Paul is going to give a testimony of his heart. Of what it actually means to be saved of what it actually means to be what he's going to say in verse 3 to be the circumcision what it, what it actually what happened to him at salvation he's going to talk about this conversion he's going to talk about everything that we read about in Acts chapter 9 where where Paul is confronted with Christ on the road to Damascus going to kill and, and arrest Christians it's like he gets a Google alert there's Christians here hey got, can I go get them? So he's on his way, he's confronted with the Lord, and he's saved. We see this incredible, um, incredible path throughout the, the details as Luke records it in the book of Acts. He's simply a historian, you can tell, because there's almost no true, um, there, it doesn't really tell you anything about his heart, it doesn't tell you anything that's going through Paul's mind. It simply says, he met Christ, basically then he's converted, we see him praying, and immediately he departs and starts proclaiming the gospel immediately starts preaching. He just gives the facts. So Philippians chapter 3 is going to be a very personal testimony of Paul's conversion and what exactly it means. As I read through this text, I'm going to read verses 1 through 12, and I will walk through some of it. I want you to be aware of how many times he says we or me or my or I. This is incredibly personal. So starting in verse 1 of Philippians chapter 3, it says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. "...though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcise the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless." But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith." that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, either will already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today, God. We're so incredibly thankful for your grace as we're able to to come into this place and just set aside even just a, an incredibly small amount of time in this moment of our week to be able to look through your word. And God, I pray that as we look at this text that you would you would allow us to examine ourselves, that we would all be able to be honest and open, and that we would truly examine our hearts as far as um, salvation goes and as far as understanding if we are converted, what exactly it means. And God, as we walk through this, realizing that we have a continual need for you, a continual need for repentance, a continual need to search in a passionate pursuit of you. God, I pray that you would um, bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, this text is going to be somewhat familiar for many of you. Um, Just notice the first word of chapter 3. He says, finally. Okay, usually that means what? It means it's going to be coming to a close, right? This is chapter 3. Okay, there's still a chapter 4. He's not close to being done. It's the old pastor trick, you know. In closing, and then 25 minutes later, you're sitting here wondering, but he was done. Right, you were all excited. You guys, you, sit, you hear in closing, the Bible packs up, right, put your pen away, and the guy's still talking. Okay, so I, I blame Paul for all of this. He was the first true preacher. Um, <laughs> but he says, finally, and he talks about rejoicing in the Lord. Rejoice. Joy is such an incredible part of our spiritual walk. It's an incredible theme that's all throughout Scripture, actually joying and rejoicing in the Lord. And verse 2 says, Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. He's saying simply look out. There are people who intend to harm you. It's ironic that as he's writing this, he's talking to these people who were being confronted by Judaizers who were saying, hey, Gentiles coming into the church. I know you're probably saved, whatever, but you don't really understand. We're we're Jews. We really know what it means to be saved. You're just a Gentile, remember? So they're they're coming in and they're saying, look, you're going to have to be circumcised. You're going to have to do all of these ritual things in order to be saved. And Paul is simply writing to them And he's saying, beware of these dogs. Beware of these evil workers. He's saying they're not being honest in their false teachings. And the irony of verse 2 of saying beware of dogs is that the Gentiles were being called dogs by these people. So he is telling them, beware of those dogs. Those are the ones with the teeth. Those are the ones that are biting. Those are the dogs that you need to beware of. Beware of evil workers. Okay? Do you think he's being a little strong in his language? Absolutely. Because they are representing a false gospel. They are telling Gentiles newer to the church what it means to be saved, and they are saying it's all about what you do. It is all about being circumcised. It is all about these righteous acts that you do in yourself. verses 3 and 4 for we are the circumcision which worship god in the spirit and rejoice in christ jesus and have no confidence in the flesh that verse right there is going to be its own sermon won't do that but for we are the circumcision well who is it how do i know that if we are the ones that we are truly ones who are in christ how do we know if we are one of god's people how do you actually know which worship God in the Spirit. So my question, do you worship God in the Spirit? Do you truly worship Him? Because worship of God is not ones where we simply just emote how we feel. I want to make that very clear, because when we read through the Psalms, do we see the Psalmist writing and talking about how they feel? Are they lamenting? Are they doing these things? Absolutely. But that is never the end goal of his praise and of the worship. It always returns to God and who he is, praising him for his character and for his attributes, not just because he's given us something. This is incredibly important. Um, My wife and I had an incredibly long conversation about this last night. Some would say it was way too long. Okay, That's why neither of us slept much which isn't good when you're anticipating having a baby in, like, early December. We should be stocking up on sleep, but as you know, you can't store up sleep. Very upset about this, okay? But in our conversation, it was this balance of, okay, thinking and feeling. I'm obviously a thinker. Big shock, right? I'm sure some of you guys are like, really? really thought he was a feeler. Real warm and cuddly kind of guy. <laughs> if you met my wife, you know she is absolute feeler. Like. She can think, don't, don't, don't hear me say that she's not able to think, okay? I'm just saying, she is an incredible feeler. But that's part of the reason that I was so drawn to her, right? Because it was so different than me. I said, wow, she actually, like, smiles and, like, cares about things. Like, I want to learn to do that, too. Like, right now, I just smiled. I don't know why, I thought I had to, okay? <laughs> it's just not my natural response but feelings change so much don't they um sports fans okay your feelings will change if you're watching a football game every single play oh i love the way that look at that they're running the ball this is great We're, we're gonna win like we're controlling the clock doing all this stuff and then all of a sudden we're down it's why aren't they throwing the ball okay Feelings change all the time. Relationships are changing. When we, when we rely everything based on simply how we feel, we're very susceptible to, one, being manipulated, but, two, being incredibly wrong. Because there are times that we know, we, we say that we love our spouse, and we truly, truly do. But if the way that we feel towards our spouse is susceptible just to our emotions in a given moment, do we stop loving our spouse when they ask you to do something and you're really stressed out? continually throughout scripture we see this idea of knowing what is true of having a certain knowledge and again don't don't hear things that i'm not saying i am not saying that emotions are bad absolutely not because emotions have are are one of the ways that we respond to god we respond to the truth of who god is through our emotions he has given us emotions they are incredibly important and incredibly valuable So this idea, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. The spirit is always going to point you to worshiping God for who he is, not just how we feel about who he is. And rejoice in Christ Jesus. I'm also going to say that worship isn't just music. Many of you know that. There's, there's an incredible number of ways that we worship God. Music is a way that we have constructed our worship so that and we can do it together. It's an incredible gift that God has given to us of being able to worship him through our music. And all of it is to point us to who he is. So as we're singing these songs this morning, as we're singing these, so- these songs of praise, and as we're singing all about who God is, Saying, You are God alone. Singing about, Since I have been redeemed, fill in the blank. Did you do so with rejoicing? Because if we're not rejoicing in our worship, if we're not truly worshiping Him in the way that He has intended, then why do we spend the time to do it? Worship is not a spectator sport. And these, these are all things that I am incredibly guilty of myself of seeing a song and spending more time thinking, well, I don't know if I'm really in tune with how all this is going to go. I don't really know if it's going to go up. I don't know if I can hit that note. I don't know if I can do. I said before, the Bible says to make a joyful noise. It never says a pretty one. Something my brother always pointed out to me. I always thought it was because he didn't have a good voice, but he was actually right. And so as Paul is walking through this, he gives you, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus, and notice the end, and have no confidence in the flesh. And so here's what Paul does. He then is going to give an argument for those that might say, well, I, I actually can have confidence in my flesh, Paul, like you may not, but I do. You don't know what I've done. Just like Paul to start the argument and finish it before someone's even argued... Verse 4, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof, he might trust in the flesh, I more. So he was like, okay, so you want to glory in the flesh? You want to be proud of what it is that you've done? Fine. If anyone has confidence in the flesh, if anyone should have the most, it's me. If you think you have more confidence, step up, because I'm about to put you down. This is like someone, any one of us, okay, when Muhammad Ali's at the peak of his power, just knocking out dudes all the time, and he's bragging, like, I'm the baddest man, no one can do anything. Same thing with Mike Tyson. Everyone's going, yeah, he is. Did any of you want to fight Mike Tyson? I still don't, okay, and he's washed up. <laughs> He'd still knock me out, I'm just telling you, okay? Don't get crazy. He's simply saying, look, if you think that you have a resume to boast in your flesh, put it against mine. Mine's going to win. And then he actually gives it to you quickly, verse 5 and 6. He goes through, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He goes through all of these things. Tribe of Benjamin brought the first king of Israel. And what was Paul's name prior to conversion? There's a chance that there's a real connection there. Can't be a hundred percent. It's likely. Okay. He's giving this incredible resume of basically saying any box that ever needed to be checked for righteousness of things that you have done or simply been given based on lineage, which was everything to the Jewish people, he said, yeah, I've checked them all, actually. And zeal in persecuting the church? Yeah, I had that. I had incredible amount of religious activity. There's no one that can step up to me. He was basically Captain America for the Jews, just without a shield. Like, the way that Captain America is everything that America is. This guy was Captain Hebrew, and Hebrew of the Hebrews. He makes it incredibly clear. The pinnacle of everything that you would be looking at for glorying in the flesh, for for trusting and having confidence in the flesh, I have it. But what does he say in verses 7 and 8? But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Absolute loss. They are nothing Verse 8, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss. Again, so in in Hebrew language, there wasn't really a great way to emphasize anything outside of what? Just saying it over and over again. Some of you are like, hey, you say things over and over again. Yes, I do. And I could say it's just because Paul did it, but it's probably just because I may have forgotten already. Okay? But he's emphasizing it again. Verse 7, But what things are gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss. In exchange for what? For the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. There it is again. And do count them but dung that I may win Christ. It says, Out of everything I've had, everything I've ever been given, and he had everything. He would have been viewed as nearly perfect in this, in this culture and in this life. And he's writing and saying, I count it all as loss. He didn't simply say, I count it as less good than Christ, where I saw Christ and said, well, let me exchange this good thing for something that's slightly better. This isn't like playing Bigger and Better, where I have a pen. Do you have something bigger and better? Well, it's a bigger pen, cool. Let me go try to trade this for other things. A stapler, that's pretty cool, and you work your way up. Some of you have played these games in different youth groups and things. He doesn't say, all of these things were good, and I simply upgraded. What does he say? I count them as what? Loss. That's negative, that's not good, that's liability, okay? Open up your bank account. If you see a loss, you're not happy about that. There's nothing good. He's counting it as loss. It's not neutral. It's not good. They are but dung. So he's saying, I've counted all of these things as loss. I've given up all of it that I may win Christ. Remember Matthew 13 The treasure verse, uh, so Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 says it again The kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he has and buys that field. Man finds a treasure and said, This is so incredibly valuable. I'm going to hide this treasure so no one takes it away. I'm going to go and sell every single thing that I have. I'm going to do so joyfully and then I'm going to return, and I'm going to claim that treasure. He buys that field because it is a treasure. The pearl in the following verses, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all he had and bought it. Seeing a treasure, seeing a pearl and saying, man, but I have all of these other things and I count them as lost. They are but dung compared to this treasure, compared to this pearl. And Paul is pointing out who that pearl is, who that treasure is at the end of verse 8, that I may win Christ. Is he your treasure? Is he your pearl where you will give everything that you have? Everything that you have in exchange for him. We know the rich young ruler in Matthew 18. See the conversation. Lord, I've kept all the commandments. What must I do? Okay, go and sell everything that you have. Oh, yeah, I'm not going to do that. I don't know if you know what I have. I am I got a lot of stuff. They're all things. They're all temporary. Name any of these things that the rich young ruler had that he's going to take with him into eternity. Paul is making the point that we must forsake everything to know Christ. Everything. Notice there's not an exception to everything. Forsaking all, did you, say, did you see a parenthetical there of, except for these things, and then give a list? Man, sometimes I really wish there was a list. Because sometimes it's really, really hard. Saying that knowing Christ is a value far surpassing All else. In verse 8, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. In Ephesians chapter 3, when Paul writes, he's praying for believers that we may know Jesus, that we would actually know him. His prayer is that we would know him. And all throughout this, you are going to see that it's written in the original language within a present context where it's something that must be continual, must continue to be going on, where if we don't desire to know Christ, is that not an insult to him, to not continue to seek after him? Saying, Christ, I I knew you when I prayed that prayer that one time. I think I'm good. I should be just fine. I don't need to continue pursuing after you. There are people within the church who had the same spiritual maturity when they were saved at six as they do at 66. And that is an incredibly sobering thought. Not desiring to know him is an insult to who God is, to who Christ is. It's reflective of spiritual deadness and spiritual apathy. And spiritual apathy from someone who is a professing Christian who has claimed to know who Christ is, to have a knowledge of him, to have been redeemed and converted and saved by him through his redemptive work, to have that spiritual apathy is so contrary to this idea of salvation, moving from death into life. How can we be apathetic? How, are we apathetic when an individual in the hospital is, is, is called dead? In any way and then they're they're seemingly brought back to life you ever been in a hospital you hear the stories about a person who was declared dead at 1132 and then 1145 there they are standing up walking out move from death into life is anyone in that hospital apathetic about what just happened or people rejoicing that someone has moved from death and into life and let me just be very clear that is simply physical this all is going to pass away And for those of you that are around my age, I really want us to understand this because as young people, we really think nothing will ever happen to us until we're 70, 80, 90. But living in this valley, how often do we see a car accident happening out um, heading out Newcastle Siltway? Okay, we all know what these roads are like, especially over winter. And every time you open up the Post-Independent, every other week there's a 17, 18-year-old kid dying from a car accident. That should break our hearts, because these are young people. We rejoice when people have moved from physical death into life, but how much more should we rejoice when we have moved from spiritual death into spiritual life? Paul's language throughout all of this is indicating a continual knowing of God in Christ he's going to continue on later verse 13 talking about pressing on and I want us to keep that frame throughout the rest of the text pressing on pursuing God continuing to press hard after him as a man I'm going to use this illustration from a male's point of view because ladies I I just I don't know how you think I just don't okay I haven't experienced it okay But this continual knowledge, this isn't just a one-time and you're done. Men, do you remember how hard you worked in the pursuit of your wife? To get her to actually pay attention to you? To get her to notice you? To actually get her and to claim your wife? Because all you wanted was to know her. How did you know that you loved her? You wanted to spend time with her. You wanted to get to know her. You wanted to be around her. And some of you have probably never worked so hard in your life as you did trying to convince the woman that you ended up marrying that you were the right guy. Because let's be honest, we have nothing good to offer them. (laughs) Statistics will tell you women literally have to downgrade in their options because there's more of them. Statistics are in our favor, men. Use it, okay? They will settle. Just press on, okay? I'm speaking from experience, okay? But now imagine you finally work so hard passionately pursuing this woman that you want to be your wife. You work up the courage to ask her, and she's finally gotten to a point where she's just sick of you so much that she's just going to give up and say yes. Some of you may have had a different relationship than I did. That's just the way I view it. Okay? Do you stop pursuing your wife on your wedding day? Once you're married, do you say, well, now that I've received her as my wife, I'm done. I don't need to pursue her anymore. Do we stop? Paul is saying, continue on in doing these things. He's continuing to suffer. Do you remember where he is as he's writing this letter? Where is he? He's in jail he's not sitting at a hotel going man you know i should really tell these people about suffering while i'm really comfortable he's writing this from jail he's writing the letter to them saying press on do not glory Do have no confidence in your flesh everything that we think that we can be proud of in ourselves it is dung it is counted as loss and as we read through that list In verse 5 and 6, we look at this and we would say, well, those things in and of themselves are not bad. Is being circumcised the eighth day bad? Is being of the tribe of Benjamin bad? Absolutely not. But he's saying it is negative because that is what he thought was going to earn him his salvation. There are so many people in the church that claim to be Christians, that claim that they know who God is, because either A, someone in Awana said that I prayed a prayer one time, yet I have absolutely zero fruit or any desire to ever know God, or B, my parents are saved. I grew up in a Christian home, therefore I must also be saved. If you find me that text... I will completely apologize for hours and hours if, if you can find me the text where it says that those whose parents are saved are saved also. It's just, it's simply not there. Everything that is refuted throughout the New Testament is the idea that your lineage does not save you. You must be in Christ. Your works do not save you. You must be in Christ. You must know him. But not only you must know him, but more importantly, he must know you and this is something that when we hear preached it's do you know christ do you know christ do you know him do you know him and people in their hearts they say yes i absolutely do know him because i feel it in my heart and i feel like i know him but does he know you and the only reason i say that is because the bible has said many will claim that they know him and he will say i did not know you so the very sobering convicting question is does christ know you and do and, and do we know him? First John chapter two, verse three and four. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Well, you might say, well, I thought you just said it's not about like everything that we do. See, it's easy to overcorrect from okay. No confidence in the flesh. It's not all about what you do for salvation. That is absolutely true. But a truly repent, converted believer will have works that support this. Jesus gave continue, continuous amount of parables talking about the trees. Right? Lo- Love trees. Big botanist. That guy. Okay. He created them, so it makes sense. But he's saying, can a fruit tree, w- will a fruit tree bear thistles? Absolutely not. Does it? Does it? You you, you guys understand the ideas. I'm not going to have to go through all these stories, okay? But he's continuing with this idea of saying, what you do does matter. You will have fruits that are evidence of your faith. You will love one another if you are in Christ. They will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. This isn't something that we can just conjure up in and of themselves. And so Paul is looking at everything. He's giving the argument that when I saw the truth that all of these things in my life were lost, I quickly exchanged them for the knowledge of who Christ is. What an incredible gain. Can you imagine this? Trading in everything that you have, all of these things that are temporary, all of these things that get you no closer to salvation, trading all of them in for Christ where not only you receive him, but he then calls you his own. Is there any greater prize than this? Quick word study. I know you guys are always in in love with those. Um, But it was incredibly interesting to look at this. When it talks about the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, there in verse 8, we know the word gnosis, and we we see Gnostic Gospels a lot. Um, We we look down on them because, you know, you probably should. Um, But these were people that were writing and claiming that they had a, quote, secret knowledge that was only for them because they were the best of the best, that God specifically revealed to them a secret knowledge. And they're writing this and basically trying to hold that over other people, saying that they had a secret and special knowledge. But this word gnosis is reflective of knowledge, but the word here is gnosios from genosco. The idea with this word is that it's not an intellectual knowledge, but it's experiential Again, I really want to sit on this just for a minute, because we don't. We always talk about head knowledge, heart knowledge, and all of these things as if we can just separate the two entirely. Again, I'm an incredible, incredible thinker. If you were to put me on the scale, I'm like 99% thinker, half a percent feeler, half a percent just stupid, okay? <laughs> That's offensive that you laughed, okay? The idea with this whole word of saying this excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord is not simply that you know his name, that you know the stories about him, that you know who he is, that you know where he was born, that you understand how old he was before he died, that you understand what his ministry was, but that you experientially and firsthand know Jesus. The far surpassing value of actually knowing him Again, it's not just in the mind. It's actually experiencing it. In Luke 134, we see the angel coming to Virgin Mary, and then Mary says unto the angel, how shall this be, when she's told that she's going to bear a son, how shall this be, seeing I know not a man? It's the same word. I have never experienced the knowledge of a man. I've never experienced a man. We all know how you get to have a child. She is simply saying, angel, maybe you're confused about this. I have never known a man. I am a virgin. How is it possible that I could be having a child? I have never experienced a man. It's so much more than just simply knowing and memorizing and knowing stories. It is about truly experiencing and intimately knowing who Christ is and absolutely pursuing him all the way so what then is salvation salvation is clearly knowing christ and christ knowing you first john 5 20 and we know that the son of god has come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true and we are in him that is true even in his son jesus christ this is the true god and eternal life many will claim many will say that they believe but as Verse 9 shows that we must be found in him. Notice Paul doesn't just simply settle for, I must know who who Christ is. I must have an awareness of who he is. But at the beginning of verse 9, "...and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith." incredible power because it takes this inverse relationship of yes I must know who he is but more importantly I must be found in him he must know me by name I must be considered one of his sheep he must know me And there's an evidence of if he knows you, is do you desire to know him? Do you desire to read the word of God? Do you desire to seek after God in prayer, to seek him and his holiness? Do you do those things that are true marks of a believer? Because if not, you cannot simply rely on one time praying a prayer when you were a child. And understand, I would absolutely love to say, if you prayed a prayer one time and have zero fruit to show for it, that is absolutely okay. Do I want 70% of the country to truly and genuinely be believers? Absolutely I do. But when abortion rates within the church are no lower in the world when divorce rate is no lower in the church than it is in the world where every single statistic that you look at take a f- quick flip through barner research people who claim to be christians stats are almost no different from church and secular and don't i don't want to hear the argument of well they're just claiming to be christians and they're not absolutely there are some but why do we think that that is everybody when the clearly the word of god says many will claim but many will not be known by God. And the reason we see throughout 1 John, if you read through 1 John, there's a good indication. um, You'll probably know if you're saved by the end of reading that book. It's probably two or three pages. I just encourage you to take a look through it. Read through it to actually examine yourself. Understand, do I show the evidence of a person who has been converted, who has been redeemed? Do I do the things that God has called his people to do? Do I have love for other people? Do I preach the word? Do I seek him in prayer? Do I seek him in his word? Do I do all of those things? If I have no desire to get to know him, then it is very, very possible you never knew him at all. Because that conversion, there's an incredible change that happens. What is it that Paul says? He considered all things lost that he formerly thought were gain. All of these things that I sought after. Okay? You don't just become a Pharisee by chance. He worked after it. He worked hard to get to where he was. These people worked very, very hard. They had zeal. He had zeal in persecuting the church. He worked so very hard. But when he was confronted with Christ at the moment of his conversion, every single thing that he had gloried in became lost in exchange for Christ. Everything about him was different. His whole life had become different because, as Corinthians tells us, he was a new creation. This isn't just an incredible discipline to change, but the actual orientation of your heart is now set on heavenly things as opposed to earthly things. We have so many people that look and smell in every way, just like the world, but yet they claim to be a follower of Christ. Look at the disciples. They were absolutely nothing, nothing like the world. Jesus was absolutely nothing like the world. He came into it, and he's refuting against the Pharisees, as Pastor Ben's studies has been going through this entire time, saying, you guys don't get it. You don't understand what it is. Spurgeon uses an illustration um, and he's talking about conversion about about the pig and there's two plates of food. okay Charles Spurgeon is one of the greatest preachers that we've ever had. great orator of the text of Scripture. okay when you read him, do so slowly. but he has the illustration. And he's talking about conversion of of having a pig and two plates of food. You put the finest food, whatever some of your guys' favorite food is, the most beautiful, incredible food on one plate, and you put just trash and rubbish. When we've had picnics in here, the bowl that we collect for Pastor Ben and Maggie and them, that is the other plate, okay? You have these two plates, beautiful, excellent-looking food, and you have just a plate of absolute trash and rubbish, and you let a pig out. Okay, I, I grew up in the city okay so this was all new to me okay but where's the pig gonna go he's gonna go to the trash and why is he gonna go there because that's what he likes because he likes the trash he loves the rubbish he's gonna sit there and this person says he's gonna he's gonna eat it he's gonna wag his tail and he's gonna do so with such incredible joy i figured this out the first time i helped my wife Um, one dangerous morning, jumping into a a pig pen by myself. Some of you, that's kind of like, yes, my three-year-old does that. I was very proud at that moment. And I touched a pig. (laughs) So I learned so much about pigs in this one morning. But you understand that as the pig is eating all this trash, they do so joyfully because why? It is what they like. It is what they enjoy. Playing in the rubbish, wagging their tail, being as happy as can be. then spurgeon goes on to say but if i had the power to change that pig into a man to change him into a man he would instantly the same thing that he had just been enjoying so much the trash the rubbish that he had just ingested would now make him sick it would make him want to vomit he is repulsed by what it is that he was just doing why because he's a new creation he is completely different where the old things he looks at and he's he, he absolutely repulsed by them. He wants no part of it. And when he looks back and sees you, he is ashamed that you see him eating this trash, eating this rubbish. Is that not an incredible illustration of what true conversion is, of what true salvation is where we look back, all of these things that he once loved and absolutely took great confidence in, he is now looking at it and saying, that is rubbish. He says it is dung. All of it. He's the new creation, and all of those things are something that he absolutely is repulsed by. We have to continue searching after Christ. We have to continue pursuing him. This is not a one time, I know I was saved and now I'm just, I don't need to read anymore. I don't need to pray. This isn't waiting in line at the DMV, getting your ticket, saying, yep, got it, so when we're ready, I'm good. Okay, and life is probably a long wait, just like the DMV is, right? would be waiting forever, holding on to that ticket, saying, hey, I believe that I was saved, and I'm good. God gave me the ticket. I can just sit back and never do anything because we are encouraged by the Spirit, we are led by the Spirit to seek after Him. If we are not seeking after Him, the Bible is telling us that the Spirit is not in us if we're not doing these things. And quickly, I just want to point out verses 10 through 12 that Throughout that text, Paul is not advocating for spiritual perfection. He's simply saying that he's desiring to do these things. He says, "...that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus." At the end, he says, "...I am apprehended of Christ. He has made me his own." At no point will you find, Bible saying, that you will become perfect in all of your actions. Anyone who gives you a doctrine of sinless perfection is absolutely lying to you. It's not going to happen. But the believer is incredibly sensitive to sin. Consider your life before your conversion. You look back and you look at those things and, and you're looking at them and you're disgusted and repulsed by it. But were you at the time at the time you loved it prior to my conversion i absolutely loved it because it felt good the flesh was being very very pleased throughout all of it but we look back and we can say it is nothing the believer is so incredibly sensitive to what sin is because we understand it is an incredible offense against a perfect and a holy god you hear criticisms that well Christians don't actually, they don't think that they, they'll sin anymore. They act like they're perfect and they're all of these things when it should be the entire opposite. We are so incredibly aware and so incredibly grieved by our sin. The Bible doesn't say that God will remove sin from your life, but you have a way to combat it and you're incredibly grieved for it. Incredibly grieved when a believer sins. They are so sensitive because they understand the implications. But for so many of us, we're more concerned with our sin when our family or a friend finds out, than understanding that it was an offense against God. Do, do, we, do we view sin within this idea of offense against God? Yeah, that's probably not good, but as long as my wife doesn't find out, that's okay. Because in practice, that is exactly what happens. While I was on my research kick, you find that 68% of professing Christian men in the church, regularly, okay, I, I just want to point this out, professing Christian men, willingly said this to a survey, so this isn't even counting ones that are lying, okay, saying that they regularly view pornography. 68% of them in the church. This is not the people that you're going to find drunken at the bar all day. These are the people that are in the church, 68% saying, I regularly view pornography. Counting in people that are lying, that number's even going to be higher. So what is it that is happening? Why Why is it that these stats are so true? Because you'll find that so many of these men, they are willing to continue in it as long as their wife never finds out. Because the offense against a perfect and holy God isn't enough. Do we understand what happens when we sin? Do we actually understand that that regular viewing and all of these things, and again, sexual immorality is one of the most basic, fundamental things for the believer to be able to have control and power over. If we can't get through that, good luck getting through the rest of it. But if 68% are willingly saying that they regularly view pornography, then what is going on? There is no way that we can argue that every 70% of the Christians are saying that they're actually saved. There's no way that we can look at that and say, well, then how can I contradict what the Bible is saying when all of these things are the case? Because it has to change your life. Actual repentance of sins will actually change your life. True faith in Christ will change your life. Paul is an incredible illustration of this. He was killing Christians. Do you remember what was happening when Stephen was being martyred? People were giving things to Saul. They were offering things to him. It has to actually change and grab a hold of your life. Things have to be different. God is perfect and holy. And we are so deeply, deeply sinful. And until we actually come to the understanding of that, there is no true repentance, there is no salvation. Faith and repentance work hand in hand. We can't just preach, have faith in God and forget to ever talk about repentance. On the other hand, we can't just say repent of your sins because faith must be there. There's incredible balance with this. And again, going back to what I said at the beginning, I understand this that this message may not be the greatest self-esteem boost, that you're going to walk out and say, I am awesome. Yeah. I wish I could give that to you, but I'd be sick if I did it and you, you should be sick with me if I were to do that. The focus of his message is on the righteousness of Christ, removal of self, removal of all of those things, understanding that everything that we once had confidence in is loss. But he doesn't just say, it's loss, so just forget it, go home, be sad. But what did he do? He exchanged it, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, but the righteousness of God by faith. There are so many people within the church that believe themselves to be saved, and yet have no understanding of what it truly means to to repent of sins we don't just repent of our sins at salvation we continue to do so not because it's earning our salvation again please do not hear things that i am not saying I am not saying it's this, this idea that we find in the Catholic Church of having to always go back, confess your sins so that you can actually be made right with God again. But when the Spirit of God grabs a hold of you and, and indwells you, you have to repent of your sins because you are a holy priesthood. You are set apart. Be holy, for I am holy. We are encouraged to be holy, and we cannot do this in and of ourselves. It is an evidence of the Spirit's work in us when we are grieved by our sin when we have an offense towards our spouse and we call and we ask them to forgive us. And I know that we have a business meeting coming up. I'm just going to be a couple more minutes, okay? Truly examine your heart. Examine yourself. We say, how do you know that you're saved? Well, I believe it in my heart. The heart is what? Wicked. It deceives us. This is why you don't see Paul writing, saying, but what things are gained to me, those I counted for loss, but goes on and saying count all things but loss for the feeling that you may be saved doesn't say that the excellency of the knowledge of christ jesus my lord it is so important that we know who god is that we know who christ is not just intellectually but also that we experience him And he's saying, Press hard after him. For some of you, you have continued to press hard after God, pursuing him in his holiness for 50, 60, 70 years. For some of you, maybe just one. Continue to press on, continue to radically pursue him, forsaking all else for the treasure that is Christ. And for some of you, don't be content with a salvation experience. For so many years, I said, I was saved at a conference when I was 13 because I heard a song, it made me want to cry. I felt something and said, that must be God. Nothing changed in my life until four or five years later. True salvation is continual. For those of us who are in Christ, do we not know the continual need we have to cry out to Him in repentance? Continuing continuing to repent of our sins, continuing to search after him. Um, I'm only 25, and I've only truly been looking at the word of God and praying with any sort of consistency for a few years. Five, six at best. It is incredible how much of the first 18, 19 years of my life I absolutely wasted in knowing him by saying, well, I prayed one time. How do I know I'm saved? Well, my pastor said that I was. I have no right to claim a person saved. No pastor can say, well, you are saved. Salvation is by God, not by a pastor, not by a leader. Um, Some of you know who Paul Washer is, but he was giving a story about a person that came to one of his... um, Came to one of his conferences, or he's giving a sermon, and the guy comes up and sits in the front row, and he just looked absolutely miserable. And he goes and talks to him later after preaching the gospel for about 40 minutes and asks him what is wrong. He said, I just I just heard that I'm I'm gonna die in three weeks because of cancer. And he is so scared for the very first time in his life because he's going to die. And he is scared. Nothing else had ever scared him except for this. And so what he did is he said, Okay. You've heard me preaching the gospel to you for the last 30, 40 minutes. And the guy says, yeah, and I, I understand, I hear all that, but is that it? Like, is that all that there is? Is that, is that it? Because he didn't quite understand everything yet. So Paul says, what he did is he said, look, I'm going to cancel my plane ticket. I'm just going to sit with you. I'm going to be with you up until you die. I will be with you every minute until you die in one, two, three weeks, however long it is. I'm going to spend time with you. We're going to read the word of God. I'm going to pray with you. I'm going to help you understand. I'm going to help you know who Christ is. And so as it goes on, it's been a couple days. They spend so much time together. He's opening up the word of God. He's not trying to show him all of these cool, fun illustrations, but he's simply opening up the word of God because he understands that faith comes through hearing. So he's simply reading the word of God to him. And they go through all of this, and they're about to be done. And he said, "I just, I just don't, I can't get it. I can't. I just, I just can't get there. And Paul says, okay, well, let me, let's just read one more. And he takes him, maybe for the first time, maybe for the 15th time, I don't know, goes to John three sixteen. Okay, this is one that because it's been so commonplace, I think we often forget exactly what the message is. Because when, when we've heard something a lot, don't we kind of take it for granted? When, we have, when we've been with someone for so long, don't we take it for granted? So as he opens up, he didn't want to read John 3 16 again. We said, let's just read it together. Let's just read it and then and just read it out loud. And he starts to read it and he's reading it. For God so loved the world that he gave and he just starts weeping. The man just starts crying because as he's reading this, he starts saying, he starts shaking. He's saying, he's shaking uncontrollably, and he's saying, I'm saved. I'm sa- I know that I'm saved. And Paul asked him why. He said, have you ever read this verse before? <laughs> right? Which Fair point. Because in that moment, simply hearing the word of God, understanding that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that grabbed his heart. He understood the reason for why God had to send his son, because of our sins. And repenting of sins and, and accepting faith in who Christ Jesus was and what he did in his work. And he's just sobbing uncontrollably because he actually understood. He understood what Christ did. John three sixteen. And they spent so much time in prayer. A quote by Charles Spurgeon, he says, I would rather teach one man to pray than ten men to preach. Again, this is an incredible preacher. He said it is so much more important that one man learn to pray than ten learn to preach. The idea behind that is ten preachers who don't pray are nothing. Seeking after God. This is all back to the pursuit. Seeking after God and who he is. Press on after Christ. Search yourself to see if you know him, but more importantly, if he knows you and if he does press on continue to do that continue to do his work let's pray father we thank you we thank you for who you are we thank you for your truth and god as as we spent quite a quite a bit of time just reflecting on who you are the truth of of salvation the truth that conversion and repentance and that it should absolutely change who we are God I pray that for each and every one of us that we would we would passionately pursue you that we would seek after you both in prayer and in your word God I pray that we wouldn't be a church that that simply claims to know you but that we would have people that would be that would be found in you that on the day when we stand before you, you welcome us in as your children. And we, we can look upon you and cry out, Abba, Father, that we truly understand Christ Jesus as both Lord and Savior. And you as Father, God, as we we look, we can look at statistics and we see so clearly that there are many who claim to know you and yet do not understand all that that means, that, that in America we have we don't truly have the view of suffering. And so many of us are incredibly thankful for the comfort. Um, I myself am incredibly thankful for the comfort that we have. But I am incredibly guilty of taking that for granted as there are so many people in other countries that are being killed even today because they refuse to reject you. And yet there's times where, where we struggle to wake up on a Sunday morning or to ever open up your word or to ever pray to you because we didn't have time. God, I ask that you would forgive me of those things where, where I, I set you aside in place of anything else, the times where I don't have time, where I didn't make it my focus, or I come up with all of these excuses to justify not spending time and searching after you each and every day as I should. God, we thank you that you've given us your word, that we can so clearly know who you are, that we can have a true experiential knowledge of who you are. God, I pray that for those of us here who are who are found in you, who you who we call Father, and who you call us your children, I pray that we would continue to press on, forsaking everything else, so that may wait that we may continue to win you. And for those of us, God, who don't truly know, who have no no who have received no salvation, that we recognize the eternal destiny in hell apart from you, fully experiencing all of your wrath. How there's times when, when I wish that hell was never a reality, that, that I can almost understand the idea that, that everybody's going to go to heaven eventually. It sounds good, it feels good, but when we do that, we completely remove your holiness. We say that our sin wasn't that great, but God, it was so great that you sent your Son to die. Father, as we examine ourselves this morning, I pray that that in this time that we would be able to truly reflect on if we know you, to be able to look through your word and know the evidences of men and women in the church who know you, who seek after you, who passionately pursue you, who seek to be holy because you are holy that you would be our example, that we don't compare our faith and our spiritual walk to other people, to other men, that we don't look upon another and say, well, at least I'm not as bad as that person or I am as good as that person and they seem good enough to me, but that Christ would be our example and not another, not a pastor, not a friend, not a family member, but that only you and you alone would be our example. God, I pray that you would continue to reveal yourself to us. I pray that you would convict us and I pray that we would return always with praise for who you are as the perfect, almighty, and holy God. It's in Jesus' name, amen.